Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. It's a brand new week here on Political Rewind, and as usual, I'm very glad to have all of you with us uh, to listen to our show today. I haven't looked at the calendar much lately, but I did early this morning, and uh, I counted back to the day we first did our show uh, while sheltering in place. I've said it before, me from the spare bedroom in our house just outside the city of Decatur, and uh, today we start week 16. Who would have ever believed that we would all be continuing to uh, have our lives changed so dramatically by the coronavirus? But in fact, that, of course, has happened to so many people. All of our panelists continue to join us, from uh, usually from their homes, uh, some from their offices, but uh, trying to be as safe as possible. And that's the case of the panel that we uh, welcome today. Oh, by the way, before I introduce the panel, I, let me give you a quick program note. Uh, you heard us say on Friday that we were going to talk today to uh, Princeton professor Julian Zelizer about his new book on Newt Gingrich, Burning Down the House, in which he contends that it's Gingrich who was the first one to come along and uh, lead us into the kind of toxic partisan politics that we know is so much a part of our political landscape today. Um, we have asked Professor Zelizer, to uh, delay his appearance on the show because there's simply too much news of the day that we want to talk about. But, but if you're interested, we'll have Mon soon. But in the meantime, Virginia Prescott of On Second Thought is interviewing Zelizer in a Zoom conversation for Acapella Books tomorrow night at 7 p.m. And you can join that conversation. Um, Tom Faust, Sam Burmistaus, if we can put up a link on our social media to where people can see Virginia interview Julian Zelizer. That'd be great. And then we'll have uh, Professor Zelizer on sometime soon. So I just wanted to get that in. All right. The panel today, Jim Galloway, lead political writer for uh, the AJC and my partner on Monday and Friday shows. He oversees uh, the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. You read him in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays. Hi, Jim. Another new week. Yeah, and, and still things are happening. Uh, just another program note or a public announcement. Today's the deadline sure. uh, for uh, if you want to register to vote for the August 11th Ooh. runoff. You can't do it if you don't. Thank uh, you. Tuesday will be too late. Thank you for reminding all of us of just that. Thank you. Uh, we're also joined today by a political science professor, Dr. Amy Steigerwald. She's at Georgia State University. You hear her on our show frequently and we're always glad to have you with us. Hi, Amy. How you doing? Hi, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're, our team lost its first match back Saturday night, 1-0. They couldn't score a goal. I, I hope that didn't bum you out too much. Oh, yeah. We, we went to bed at halftime after staying up to watch the uh, delay due to lightning, where my oh. son was very confused of why there was no rain and a lot of lightning, and he stayed up way too late yeah. all to watch the goal. So there were, yeah. there were some good saves. Bello had a great shot. I hit the crossbar, but, you know, it was close, sort of. It, it's just nice to have soccer back under in yes, whatever uh, form we get it. Brian Robinson is with us. Brian, of course, is the former communications director for former governor Nathan Deal and uh, now has his own communications firm. 
and uh, works. You do have some candidates in the current cycle, and if we talk about any of them, of course, we'll talk about who you're representing. But how are you? How have you been holding up, Brian? We haven't had you on the show for a while. Yeah, well, I'll be glad when this uh, August runoff that Jim just mentioned is over. It's going to be a lot of work uh, between uh, here and there. <laughs> we're, we're really glad that you were able to take some time away from uh, your candidates and join us today. Uh, Howard Franklin, uh, too, joins us. He's the uh, managing partner at Ohio River South. You do communications and government affairs work as well, Howard. And uh, you were, for a period of time, involved in the presidential campaign when a certain former New York mayor was still in the running. Yep. Yeah, and there's still rumblings of uh, him funding another effort or doing something uh, that lifts the the rising tide for all Democrats by November 3rd. So we'll see uh, what happens there. All right. We're talking, of course, about uh, Michael Bloomberg. Um, all right. Let's get started with our conversation today. Uh, Jim Galloway, uh, the between the spread of COVID-19, which is rapidly picking back up steam here in Georgia— Unrest on the streets of Atlanta, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and Governor Kemp have really uh, uh, intensified the feud between them. And before we think about this as just an Atlanta uh, news event, Keisha Lance Bottoms is dealing with some, some issues that are being dealt with in Savannah, in Athens, in East Point, and other cities across the state that she's pushing back against uh, uh, the governor on. So I don't want people to think this is somehow kind of just an Atlanta issue. But what exactly, Jim, is happening in Atlanta right now with the mayor and the governor? Well, first of all, the background, of course, is it still remains that the 4th of July uh, weekend, that the very violent weekend, uh, where the governor, uh, uh, the Monday afterwards, the governor uh, declared a, a state of emergency and, and sent National Guard troops uh, up to a thousand in, into into the city. I think that that expires today, uh, I believe, and and so that's that's kind of the the emotional background. But what you've ha- got is you've got a serious spike in coronavirus cases in Georgia, as in many 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 other states. Uh, and and so you've got you've got gov- you've you've got mayors throughout the, the state who want to go further than than Governor Kemp is willing to go. Governor Kemp has been very very public about encouraging the wearing of masks, uh, but you have you have mayors in Savannah, Augusta, Athens uh, who want to who want to require them. And uh, Bottoms joined them last week, uh, and uh, over the weekend uh, uh, she was the one who who Kemp singled out. Uh, for criticism, uh, calling them uh, calling them eh, basically window dressing because because they're un, uh, he says they're unenforceable. Uh, it's it's a really interesting political di- dilemma that has that has a, a democratic element as well as a republican one, because on on the republican side you can kind of see where, where 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 Governor Kemp is thinking because you've got that libertarian faction in the Republican Party that doesn't like being told what to do by 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 any 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 government official and you've got uh, you know I would guess that you have many many sheriffs in South Georgia who would uh, be loath to enforce any kind of mask ordinance, but then you have on the Democratic side. Uh, for instance, and, and, and this is you're gonna have to this is, this is the the Surgeon General uh, Jerome Adams. I mean, obviously he's not a Democrat, but he he made the case on Sunday that 
that we are in an era of over-policing right now. And if you, if you, are, if you are going to attach or, uh, a punishment to not wearing a mask, who's going to enforce it and how is it going to be enforced? Uh, I think that's what, that's what uh, Marta was thinking about when initially it said it was not going to enforce uh, mask wearing. It, it's changed, it changed its mind on Friday. Brian, I would right after Mayor Bottoms said uh, that she was going to require mask wearing in Atlanta, the uh, governor's office issued a press release on official Governor Kemp uh, stationery that kind of boggled my mind in terms of some of its language. Let me read just one paragraph of it. Following Mayor Bottoms' confusing guidance about the city of Atlanta reverting to phase one, she did that in addition to the masks, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the governor's office issued the following statement. Mayor Bottoms' action today is merely guidance, both non-binding and legally unenforceable. As clearly stated in the governor's executive order, no local action can be more or less restrictive, and that rule applies statewide. Once again, if the mayor actually wants to flatten the curve in Atlanta, she should start enforcing state restrictions, which she has failed to do. We ask citizens and businesses alike to comply with the terms of the governor's order, which was crafted in conjunction with state public health officials. Brian, I was a little bit surprised by the uh, harshness of that statement in an official release. Well, Bill, I would refresh your memory because if you look back over these uh, 16 weeks that you referenced earlier, uh, the governor has refrained from taking on uh, Mayor Bottoms when she has taken on him. You know, she has gone on national news and questioned his leadership decisions and definitely took some shots at him about reopening when he did. And he stayed quiet. And you saw mayors in other parts of the state, in Savannah and now in Augusta and here in my hometown of Brookhaven, uh, you see them taking steps to implement mask ordinances. What did the governor do? They, those orders violated his order, but he stayed quiet. He didn't wade into that and risk the headlines saying, you know, governor against mask when he's spent all this political capital out there promoting the wearing of masks. And I think that at the end of the day, what happened to breaking point was when she called him out over bringing in the National Guard to protect state buildings after the Georgia State Patrol headquarters was ransacked by 60 vandals, and he just said, enough, enough. I have I have given you a lot of time to get this stuff in order, and things keep getting worse, and now we have an 8-year-old girl who has been killed. So I'm going to do something, and I think that flashpoint is what has led to this contraton between the two where he has now engaged in this war of rhetoric. But I think he's been the much more patient party here. I, 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 you know what? I'm glad, Brian, you, you said what you said, because I did not mean to suggest that this has been a one-sided war of rhetoric. You're right. Uh, Howard, the mayor has gone after the governor numerous times on national television. She's been on CNN repeatedly. Uh, 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 accusing him of not taking care of the people of the state of Georgia. So I'm really glad Brian made that point. This is a two-way confrontation, Howard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thinking about the um, just the last several weeks and the back and forth, I think the challenge that any 
any mayor has to deal with in a, in a scenario like this one has to acknowledge that this president and in many instances, this governor seemed not to be willing to acknowledge the seriousness of this pandemic. I mean, we, you know, Georgia was briefly the laughing stock of the country when our governor went on national television and said he didn't know that asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 could actually transmit the disease. We, again, were maybe a laughing stock, you know, maybe a harbinger of, of other things to come. When we opened our, reopened our state, you know, in what seemed to be stark opposition to health experts' advice any and everywhere, whether it's the CDC here in Atlanta or whether it was folks like Dr. Fauci uh, in Washington, D.C. So I, I think it's, it's – I appreciate what Brian's saying. I, I do think the governor's shown restraint. And I, I, would, I would rather he unleash a war of words and actually start doing the things that the president isn't doing, that he himself isn't doing, to protect citizens than to offer the verbal restraint, but then to allow the, the spike to go on uh, in the state of Georgia. And we've seen plenty of other states, you know, clamp down early, um, require masks, put, uh, put real thoughtful measures in place, and then see the flattening of the curve. And so for, I think for the, the frustration this mayor rightfully is expressing is that the rhetoric isn't matching the actions. We're saying everything's fine. We're just open for business. People are dying. And I, that's, that is a flashpoint for frustration, I think, much more so than what I've heard uh, in the last few minutes. I think also what you're really seeing is sort of this um, issue of the governor is thinking statewide, right? So he is trying to deal with what is going on both in areas that are not seeing a lot of spread of COVID-19 cases, as opposed to other areas where we are seeing these really big upticks. And so there's this tension. Um, one of the interesting parts, of course, of the governor's executive order was that it not only set a floor for the actions that localities could take, saying, look, all of you that didn't have any restrictions need to have these in place, but it also set this ceiling. And that's where we're seeing um, really the leaders of the sort of largest areas that are having outbreaks right now bumping up against and saying, look, that's great that you put in these four of these are what places have to do, but we've got outbreaks and we need to do more. And I do think there is something interesting to the fact that the only mayor that's been called out for implementing a mask order was, in fact, Mayor Bottom. So there was no real response when uh, it was put in place in Savannah. There hasn't been a response to being put in place in Augusta, Athens these other places. And so I think that does sort of build up that tension there as well. But I think there's this real interesting question that is also the optics of Governor Kemp saying, I'm going to fly around the state and ask everyone to wear a mask, but I'm not going to go as far as require it. And I'm going to push back at the idea that you're requiring it because then that sends a contrary message. It says, well, maybe masks aren't that important. And I think the mayors are really trying to struggle with what do we do because we need people to wear them. Yeah, yeah, Bill. Th there's w one more thing that that kind of works into this. Uh, obviously, the politics, and and then you have the kind of the legal argument. But but this, I would have to go back. I mean, and and outside of wartime, this has been the the longest period under which Georgia has been uh, under an emergency management, uh, an emergency uh, declaration 
from the governor's office, uh, which gives him extraordinary powers, extraordinary uh, abilities to limit local governments. And I think what you're starting to see is some chafing uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, across the state about this, about, the, about sovereignty, local sovereignty. Well, Amy, that's an issue I know you have been uh, thinking a lot about, the legality of the state being able to order local municipalities to not exceed whatever uh, emergency order the governor's office puts in place. Yes. So there's sort of this this ongoing tension because the question is, what's going to happen now? Right. So as Governor Kemp said, these orders, these mask orders, for example, are unenforceable. And there is the option for the state, in fact, to sue these localities and cities and say, your order is in conflict with this executive order. The problem is, is that while legally that probably is a pretty good argument, usually state orders trump localities and cities, it's a terribly treacherous one politically, right? To go in and say, I'm going to sue you for trying to aid your citizens from not being harmed by this terrible disease is a really hard one to make and sort of sets that up. The the other part is that I think there is really quickly an interesting legal question of whether or not that normal ability of the state to trump cities and localities works the same way in a public health emergency, particularly when they're not fighting against wanting to do less, but they're fighting about trying to do more. And that would be, you know, if we sort of take a step back from everything else that's going on, a really interesting legal question about what's their ability to uh, take action there. So, Brian, let's put this in a larger context. Uh, You were part of an administration the first four years of Governor Nathan Deal, in which the governor and the then mayor of Atlanta, Kasim Reed, made great efforts to work as collegially as possible on many, many projects. You have, so you have the governor of the state and the mayor of, of uh, arguably the most important city in the state uh, forming a partnership to accomplish uh, uh, many shared goals. Um, and and it, it, it looked for a while, Brian, as if uh, it was, you know, we know that Keisha uh, uh, Bottoms was obviously uh, not going to support uh, Kemp for governor, but... Uh, they did seem, at least early on, to look to some extent to try to have a cordial relationship. I wonder if they'd been able to maintain one, whether they could have had a united front in fighting COVID-19, or are they just so diametrically opposed, because Galloway points out the politics of the virus, that that could never happen, Brian? Well, certainly local politics these days is nationalized in a way that we've never really witnessed before. And I think you're seeing that at play here. I think we went through this unfortunate period where whether or not you wore a mask uh, signaled whether you were a conservative or a liberal. And that's just so silly. and just also so dumb. And I, and I think that they, they have had a good relationship. And from what I've been told from inside sources in the governor's office, that good relationship continued despite the public back and forth that we saw in the media. There was still communication going on between the mayor and the governor and their offices, which is good, and that's fine. That that kind of allows everybody to do what's good for their politics and then also do what's good for policy and the people. Now, I do think that it's gone to a different level now with the, the latest back and forth between them, and 
I, I'm hoping they can patch that up fairly quickly because it is an important signal. It is – it telegraphs a strong message when Georgians see the uh, African-American mayor of Atlanta standing next to the white governor of Georgia. It, it shows partisan unity, biracial unity. It, it's just a very important symbol for all of us to see in this state, and Deal and Kasim Reed – did it extremely well uh, over that seven-year period, and uh, you know I, I think we can get back there, but it may not be until after the November election. All right, I want to take a break now, and then when I come back, I want to uh, uh, Howard and Jim. I want to start with you two on this because I think this sets us up for a conversation about all of the attention that Keisha Lance Bottoms is getting as a potential running mate for Joe Biden, so that when Brian Robinson says he hopes they can patch things up quickly, uh, the question becomes how much of what's happening between them, the tension between them, could relate to the possibility of uh, Mayor Bottoms uh, seeing herself on the ticket with a Joe Biden. We haven't really talked about that on this show, although it's been bubbling up for quite some time. So uh, when we come back from our break, we'll start with that conversation. This is Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Brian Robinson, Amy Steigerwald, Howard Franklin joining us for today's Political Rewind. Jim, right be, but for a moment before we get to a conversation about Bottoms being mentioned as a possible running mate for Biden, real quickly, we've alluded to the virus being uh, uh, really on fire here in Georgia. Just very quickly, Jim, we should point out uh, we passed 3,000 deaths this weekend. We had 2,500-plus new cases just yesterday. Uh, we have a, had a daily record of almost 4,500 new cases that was set on Friday. We have 117,000 cases in Georgia since the pandemic began, and overall positive test rates are 9%, which is inching up over what it had been uh, before. So, Jim, just briefly— uh, yeah, it's, no it's not as we're, we're uh, not the virus we're not quite, is bad. Right. We're not we're not quite at the level that uh, Florida and Texas and Arizona may be. But the thing to keep in mind is, is that uh, we're we are now only four weeks away from putting kids in classrooms. And that's going to be the focus exactly. of our debate over the next four weeks. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about Howard. Let me come to you. You're, you're the Democrat on the panel today. There this talk about Keisha Lance Bottoms as a potential running mate, which has really really was sparked back when she made uh, her very passionate uh, speech in the aftermath. It wasn't a speech. It was remarks off the cuff in the aftermath of the protests over the uh, death of George Floyd uh, and and talked very uh, uh, emotionally about telling people to calm down. The protesters should be peaceful. She was worried about her own family, and, and it caught the nation's attention. And from that day on, uh, she had been a surrogate of Biden's longer than many other public officials, but it was really after the George Floyd uh, death that she uh, gained national attention as a possible running mate. Right, Howard? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I'm sure in Democratic circles there's a lot of discussion about her uh, prior to um, that particular flashpoint, still joining President uh, President Biden, if we were to have one, in Washington as a cabinet member, potentially as a vice presidential pick, but certainly 
you know, her star skyrocketed after that speech. I mean, natural attention she's, she's enjoyed, I think, certainly has played into, you know, some of what we're talking about here. Um, but I, I really want to be careful not to suggest that it that being able to appear on national programs or, or speaking about the national zeitgeist, not just about coronavirus, but also about police brutality and, and racial inequity are the, what's fueling, you know, this this war of words or, or this more visual, visible, um, you know, back and forth between the mayor and the governor. I, I think I, you guys were 110 percent right to think about the comparison of Reed and Deal. And we really got to remember, and I know Brian can speak to this as well, you know, Deal in many ways was a very moderate governor. He took he, you know, he went through great pains to make sure that he was extending an olive branch to the city of Atlanta and acknowledging that the city was a was a meaningful partner uh, with the state, you know, in achieving the recognition for the best place to do business, years and years running, et cetera. You know, this governor in Kemp has campaigned as a cultural warrior. Uh, he has governed as a cultural warrior on religious freedom, on abortion rights, on law and order. And so there probably just is less room. Um, not to mention the, you know, the air of divisiveness that our president has been able to stoke for the last three years, maybe four. There just is less room for agreement um, when you acknowledge all the things that keep bubbling up that don't allow for agreement. I think Brian's point, again, very well taken. The idea that wearing a mask should be able to signal your partisanship is incredible. And, I, you know, I hate to say this, but I'm pretty certain it's, it's, that's not the making of progressives or of liberals or of Democrats. That's the making of a president and many surrogates, including, I think, uh, our, our Governor Kemp, who has who re- refused to, you know, wear masks at times or to require citizens to wear masks, even as we're going in the wrong direction on this pandemic. So I, I just I say all that to say I, I wouldn't want to put this squarely at the feet of all the attention the mayor's gotten for the vice presidential possibility. I think a lot of it's just baked into the politics of where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I agree. It's so strange that this has become part of, of that culture war. I do want to just sort of uh, chime in on what Howard said about Nathan Deal being a moderate because I was there with him in 2010 and 2011 when uh, you would have uh, thought he was the most nutty right winger of all time if you if you read the Georgia media coverage of him and uh, you know let's not let's not forget we passed the toughest immigration reform law in the country in 2011 so uh, I think that what you're seeing about Deal is more in hindsight and. Uh, I think it's hard to say what we're going to be saying about Governor Kemp in in nine years should he win a second term. But you're right. Uh, The culture war issue was was still tough back in 2011. I mean, this is the we're still coming out of the Great Recession. You've got the Tea Party reaction to President Obama and the stimulus and Obamacare. I mean, that that's really where this began, where this divergence began. But there was still an ability to stand side by side in a bipartisan way at times. I mean, you still had to signal your differences. I used to joke with Kasim Reed's uh, communications team. I was like, hey, uh, why don't you go out there and call us a right-wing nut, and we'll talk about what crazy liberals you are, and just help each other out here, you know, just to be part of the, to be to help, help each other get through the bipartisanship. But I think today we're in a much worse spot. It's much harder to even acknowledge the humanity of your political opponent. And that's, 
that's really tough to navigate. I think Brian's totally right on that last point, that it's become very difficult to reach across the aisle. And I think that one of the other issues that's also overshadowing it that's very much about sort of Georgia politics is that Kemp is also trying to navigate, on some level, warring factions within his own party, right? Not only is there the jungle primary going on in the second Senate race, which has right? Members of the party really sparring with each other. Um, and it's also sort of bringing up these questions of sort of what the state is doing versus what's going on nationally. There also, um, while the legislative session was going on, were a number of really intra-party fights, much more than inter-party fights, where you had real concerns about the budgeting and a lot of clash between the governor's office and those who were doing the budgeting in the General Assembly and so I think it's trying to navigate all of that, as well as what's going on with members of the other party. And there's a global pandemic that nobody's really sure how to handle. And the states are kind of left to do it on their own. All right. So, uh, Galloway, I know you want to jump in and I want you to. But I also, you know, I've obviously lost control of the discussion, which I thought was going to be about <laughs> whether Bottoms was a potential running mate for <laughs> Joe Biden or not. But you know what? This is a smart panel and I love listening to him. So, Jim, I'm going to leave it to you. I would love you, among other things, to comment on whether we think Keisha Bottoms is really in play as a potential running mate. Jim, you'll love this. I just got an email from Jack Ellis, the former mayor of Macon, uh, sort of deriding me, saying, oh, come on, Bill. Uh, one uh, one emotional speech about what was happening in the streets does not a VP candidate make. Well, of course, that's exactly right, which is why I raised the question about whether she's a legitimate uh, uh, candidate or not. But Galloway, take it away. Yeah, and that, that's precisely <laughs> where I wanted, to, I wanted to go. First of all, I mean, just remember that Keisha, Keisha Lance Bottoms is an executive. She is CEO of the city. And that always makes it harder uh, for, for to, to, to become a, a, a running mate because you're, you've got a record out there. I mean, I mean, just rem- remember that, the, the, that, that Pete, Pete Buttigieg during the primary also uh, faced that kind of headwind because of the decisions he had to make as mayor of South Bend. Plus, you've got all those you've got all those those photo, uh, uh, the, that video out there right now of of, of Atlanta on fire uh, back in uh, back in the the last week of May. So that's that's another that's another talking point. And you'll notice, I mean, you, you'll notice that that you've got three Republican candidates for U.S. Senator: Doug Collins, Kelly Loeffler, and David Looper, uh, uh, David Perdue. Now, uh, uh, kind of pointing to 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 uh, the the city of Atlanta problems and the mob rule and such. That's that's likely to become an issue. And then let me let me po- point out one 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 other thing that that if you're if you're uh, Joe Biden's people, you might be wanting to look at, and that is. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the the trial of Mitzi Bickers, a former associate of of Mayor Kasim Reed, comes up in September, and you know there's 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 no correlation between uh, Bickers and and Bottoms except for the except for for Kasim Reed. Uh, uh, Bottoms was mentored by 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 Mayor Reed, and so you've got that that tentative connect, connection, and if something in that trial comes out. And that uh, September is a really bad time for surprises. Howard, I love that Galloway mentioned that Kelly Leffler and David Perdue are now firing at Keisha Lance Bottoms. 
suddenly she's the one who's in their sights. Where's Stacey Abrams, for goodness sake? She <laughs> was the demon of Democratic Party politics. Not anymore. <laughs> Go ahead, Howard. I mean, I, I think if anything, that gives you a little bit of um, at least the outside baseball perspective of who the vice presidential nominee could potentially be or who is at least one of the more powerful and influential surrogates uh, for uh, Vice President Biden in the state of Georgia. I know we talked earlier, maybe before on air, looking at some of the national trends, uh, trend lines and the averages of polls. And for the last week or two, maybe a little, even a little longer than that, uh, Vice President Biden looks to be trending ahead and in the right direction in the state of Georgia, maybe even putting the state of Georgia in the play come November. So I, I think it says a lot about um, the attention that the mayor has been able to to hold on to. But obviously, as Jim said, the longer you're an executive, the, the more decisions you've got to make, the harder it is uh, to you know to have a, a vote that's completely uh, airtight. And I think that's something that I, I think meaningfully has to be looked at. I'm sure the folks in the Biden team are looking at it. Well, I think that Keisha Lance Bottoms had a national platform for a period of time, and she did some things really well. Uh, Mayor Ellis, as you said, mentioned uh, the speech that got national attention. Here's the issue with that speech. She was excellent. She struck the right tone. She called for calm. She tried to defuse the situation. She showed leadership. But in a campaign ad that doesn't show her talking, what is the visual going to be? It's going to be her standing with someone wearing a T-shirt that says, kill your masters, uh, something that is a direct call for violence. Now, that wasn't what Killer Mike's words were. That's what, that's what the visual is. And right now, you see Republicans and independents, and I would say, I dare say, a lot of Democrats scared by the mob rule and the violence we are seeing in our cities across the country, but particularly for us here in Atlanta. And all of a sudden, the tragic, horrifying murder of Sokaria so Turner becomes a national symbol of the danger of. The, the street violence that we are seeing. So I think that this started out as an opportunity for her. It is ending up as something that will close the door to a vice presidential pick. Amy, let me give you a last chance to weigh in on this, and then I want to talk a little bit about Georgia as a possible battleground state in the presidential race. Um, I think that, you know, going back to the point that Jim made, the sort of pro and con of picking a mayor is that they have executive leadership ability and experience already. So it means that, especially if you're thinking of the vice president as someone who might become president, that is a leg up on others who might have not had that experience. The con, however, is that any decision that was made in the city uh, under your rule or even non-decisions, but that things that happened get blamed on you. And so that makes it really difficult. So Brian is also entirely right, right? That will be, right? The visual will be that picture. The visual will also be, right, pictures of those who were killed. It'll be pictures of the looting um, and, right, the pictures of the fire at the same time. Is that all, right, her fault? No, but is that a definitely going to be the political ads that get put out? Yes, and it's a hard line to walk. And I think some of it is also, if we speak more broadly, Right. What is Biden looking for? Right. He suggested that he is cognizant of the fact that he's likely going to only serve one term if he was to win. So he needs somebody who can step right in and that knows the issues and knows the policies and 
um, whether or not that translates well when you've been the mayor of a large city to running the country is kind of an open question that we don't know the answer to. All right. Um, let's move on. Jim, uh, the New York Times yesterday ran a story uh, that uh, in which it, it reported that big-time Democrats around the country are urging the Biden campaign to go wide in their efforts to win the White House because the national polling shows Biden up almost double digits uh, in many of the polls. Um, and they include in their story uh, going after Georgia. The Biden campaign, on the other hand, according to the New York Times reporting, is reluctant to do that. Now, you just moved the jolt this morning, and you uh, the headline says uh, something about data which shows that maybe Georgia would be a good opportunity state for the vice president's campaign, for the former vice president's campaign. I frankly didn't get a chance to read it before we went on the air. So you should tell us, what does your piece say about why Georgia should be in play? Okay, well, first of all, the tension, of course, is between those who, who, who uh, those Democrats who worry about uh, a repeat of 2016 and, and are urging Biden to focus on the on the battle, the traditional battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and such in the in the Midwest. But you've got these m- numbers that are just showing incredible movement among Democrats in places like Arizona, <laughs> Texas, and Georgia. And the thing to remember, especially about Georgia, is is that you want these you want this you want this national attention. You want Biden Biden's campaign to invest in Georgia because that brings that essentially is is a party building strategy. You're trying to build build a strategy for 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 not just for 2020 but for 2022 and 2024. And so, it, kind of in advance of this New York Times story, the 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 fair fight action. The, the Stacey Abrams group uh, put out a, a, a good number of statistics, and, and they were meant for, for they were meant for for DNC uh, consumption on on why you shouldn't you you should you should entertain Georgia as a possibility, and uh, you know of course they, they point out to 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 some stats that we've already talked about like like uh, in the June 9th primary uh, Democrats outvoted Republicans you know maybe by almost fifty thousand votes uh, that that you had more first time young voters. Uh, going, I think, 59% for, for Democrats, uh, which is an incredible number and, and kind of speaks to the future. And, you know, of course, you had the the, uh, the fact that uh, we're, we're, we were rapidly becoming a vote-by-mail state and that 42% of, of African-American voters uh, – Voted by mail in the Democratic primary, which which uh, which you had some strategists saying that that wasn't going to happen. That that black voters preferred to vote in person. So so all those numbers, uh, Abrams is is tossing up into into uh, up at New York and Washington just to make the case uh, that that Georgia is a good investment. So uh, I want to continue this conversation. We're going to have to get to a break. But before we do, uh, you know, Monday is the day that a lot of new polling is released. And 538 summarizes it on their Monday website. Uh, The latest national poll averages. And national, we know that that's not the way presidents are elected. My goodness, we've certainly learned that in this century so far. Uh, But the average of the national poll shows Biden at 51%. Trump at 41 percent, really kind of a staggering gap. Uh, There's certainly time for all that to change. Uh, The same uh, uh, polls 
uh, averaging shows uh, Biden leading by 10 points in Michigan, by eight points in Pennsylvania, by eight points in Wisconsin, maybe as much as three points in Arizona, which is really kind of astonishing. And here in Georgia, the averages of what polling has taken place here, and it's limited, has Biden pretty much neck and neck with Trump, which is really fascinating. So let's keep talking about this subject uh, when we come back from our break. Uh, We'll go to the break now. We'll come back with that. And then there's a few other things we'll discuss before we're out of time on today's Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Amy Steigerwatt, Brian Robinson, Howard Franklin on Political Rewind today. All right, Brian Robinson, we a minute ago talked, or for the last few minutes uh, in the last segment, talked about whether or not the Biden campaign is going to see Georgia as a target of opportunity. Um, How vulnerable do you think uh, President Trump is in this state, Mr. Republican? Well, you know, the the New York Times story that was referenced earlier about uh, Democrats trying to go wide, go big, and expand the map, it certainly includes Georgia in that. And that story, interestingly, ends with a quote from our very own uh, Democratic State Senator Jen Jordan, who I'm often on this show with. And she goes, Democrats should invest in Georgia because it's three for one, two Senate seats and a presidential, uh, the electoral votes for Georgia. And she's right. And uh, that quote obviously had some resonance because before the ink was dry on that quote, uh, Senator Perdue had an email out, a campaign email out saying, look, they think it's three for one. We got to fight. So it, it is a fight. And we know it's a fight, Bill, because. David Perdue's campaign is already spending money on the air here. President Trump has been on the air here for more than a month, uh, having spent $1.3 million in Georgia. Look, Georgia's typical presidential advertising spend in most of my professional life has been zero. Zero. And we have spent $1.3 million in, in the summer. So, yes, Republicans take it seriously. Let me tell you a quick anecdote, Bill. I was on a call, uh, political call last week with a Republican pollster, and I asked, are these Trump numbers accurate? And he said, probably. And, you know, the Republican line, which is supportable, is that people on polling calls say they're not going to vote for Trump, and then they did in 2017. You know, all polls showed him losing in 2017. So there's this Trump effect. Uh, The pollster said something that punched me in the gut. He goes, Since 2016, we've moved much more toward online polling, so people aren't talking to an actual human being where they might feel the need to lie. Online, they're telling the truth. And so these numbers are are quite concerning. But look, we don't need polls, Bill. We have a 2018 election. Four million votes cast, 55,000 vote margin. We are a purpling And I say purpling because Democrats haven't crossed that threshold yet to win a statewide election. But the day they do, we are a purple state, and they are at the precipice. Um, And look, 55,000 votes. And then in the months uh, following the 2018 election, we had 300,000, 400,000 new voters come online. And we know, looking at the demographics, that most of them are Democrats. So it is a fight. Brian is exactly right. This is Howard chiming in. Uh, I think everything you're saying is exactly right. I think there's so much expectation about this being a meaningful election cycle 
for the first time in a generation. And it's not just the campaigns, the three-for-one that Senator Jordan um, you know, uh, chimed in about at the end of the New York Times piece. It's also a number of other organizations making the investment. I've been on calls very similar to the ones I'm sure you're on, Brian, all the time, where there are national organizations, uh, organizations and regional organizations saying, can we figure out you know, how best to spend half a million dollars or how to spend a million dollars here, not only to uh, work on that three-for-one get, but also to pick up Congressional District 7 to keep loosening the back. Congress won the loosening the back in the fight because the issue of gun violence is so important. Uh, to even push the state legislature so much so that we can break the Republican trifecta in the state house. There's a, there's a ton of upside for Democrats here. Uh, Republicans would be foolish not to expect you know, a battle royale come November. And I, I think that in addition to what Brian underscored with spending so early in summer, I'm expecting it only to ramp up, especially when you consider the fact that nothing that the pandemic or the secretary of state's office or anyone else threw at these 4 million plus voters or two and a half million voters, I'm sorry, um, on the 2020 June 9th primary slowed them down one iota. You know, I think it would be quite reasonable to expect that there's even more pent up demand. Uh, from Democrats, from progressives, from people wanting to see change at the national level, the state level here in Georgia, that wasn't realized because of hours and hours of wait at poll place, polling places, or because of the potential uh, to con- contract the pandemic while standing in line, or you know potentially interacting with uh, a poll worker or another voter in line. You know, I, I for one, and I, a couple of my employees had the same exact experience, requested in a a, a vote by mail ballot, and it never arrived. So I put on my mask, I told my family to be okay, and I stood in line, as did my wife. And I think if we get to any sort of place where this pandemic seems to be under control, I don't know what the likelihood of that is, uh, October, November, I think you'll see even greater numbers, even greater desire to see change uh, coming up the ballot box. Well, and I think the other issue is that it, you know, so Brian sort of mentioned the three-for-one, which is in itself also important because Part of what the Republican Party in Georgia is having to traverse right now is the fact that there is basically a really nasty primary going on, and that's going to continue going on into November, where you have members of the Republican Party in Atlanta having to sort of pick a side, pick between the governor's choice and the president's choice, pick between who is, in fact, there, and the fact that the candidates, as um, was sort of intimated earlier, are running really primary races instead of general election races, right? They're not trying to broaden their base. They're not trying to reach out to the other side. They're doing these kind of strong law and order arguments. They're really sort of attaching that. And the president has also continued that, right? What's most shocking, I think, sort of looking at it on a national level is that the president is not trying to sort of reach out and grow who's voting for him, right? He is focused on what he calls the silent majority, but it's not so clear that there really is that majority. And while it's good to turn out your base, you also need more people to vote for you because the polling numbers suggest right now that he's at about 40% and doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. 
Yeah, yeah, Bill. This is this is what, what's what's really gotten interesting is is of course we've got the two Senate races. We've got the traditional Senate race with David Perdue versus John Ossoff. Okay, let's p- set that aside. Let's look at the Kelly Loeffler race. Tw- uh, uh, she's facing twenty opponents. The primary one is is Doug Collins for her at this point. She she was she was introduced as somebody who might appeal to the uh, to to suburban Atlanta. She has discarded that. She is going after the hard after the Trump base in order to secure secure a berth. It is going to what this does. What this does, it's going to make it harder for Republicans to reach that middle because you're going to have two 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 Senate candidates who are going hard right. It's going to it's it's going to put some pressure on it's it's going to put some pressure on David Perdue, and it raises a possibility that there is we're likely to have a January fifth runoff, and. You've got the possibility that one side of those that uh, the Republican uh, Party will be so disenchanted that they're not going to show up. It kind of gives Democrats a a shot at at breaking that that losing streak when it comes to runoffs. We are almost out of time. Thank you for that. Was really I learned a lot listening to all of you talk about that those races. So thank you for that. Before we leave today, Jim, I think we should make note of an interesting. Uh, development out of a federal court here in Atlanta. We know that Georgia, since the 40s, 1940s, has had some of the most restrictive ballot access laws in the country. It's hard to get on the ballot in Georgia. That's prevented Libertarians, Green Party candidates, other third-party candidates from getting in front of voters. At least for the November election, a federal judge in Atlanta has now said the threshold for the number of signatures you need is going to be lowered dramatically. And we're going to see some candidates on the ballot who's never who have never been on a ballot with their parties represented before. That should be interesting. The the signature ceiling has has been lowered by thirty percent, but but think about it. We're still in a pandemic. Are you going to touch a clip clipboard that somebody else has handled? I think you're right, but the most interesting thing about that to me was the fact that since that law was passed, the ballot access law was passed in 1943, not a single third-party candidate for Congress has been able to get on the ballot. Boy, that tells you something about how limited sometimes our choices are uh, in, uh, uh, in races. We've got Democrats and Republicans, and that's about it. All right, we are completely out of time. For today's show, Amy Steigerwald, Howard Franklin, Brian Robinson, Jim Galloway, thank you all so much for a really interesting conversation uh, today. Tomorrow we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Joe Crispino, the chairman of the history department at Emory University, and uh, Frederick Knight, the chairman of the history department at Morehouse, are going to come and talk to us about, among other things, are these times in American history really unprecedented, or have we seen other periods of our experiences Americans that have been similar. We'll talk about that and a lot more on tomorrow's Rewind. Till then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye.